Welcome this morning. I'll, con- I'll confess to you guys, I'll warn you right now, I'm running a little low on fuel this morning, so it was a hard night. So some of you know I've got, uh, I've got a dog sled team, and every five to six months, all my females kind of go into their cycle, and we've got this one yearling male who's intact, and, and that means he gets a little excited right now. And so I move him out of the kennel area over to our backyard, so he's out of the danger zone. And uh, last night, last night he was just whining and howling all night long. And I'll tell you this, I have been in fights, I have been threatened, I've been shot at, but none of that is nearly as fearful as when your wife wakes up next to you, staring at you, telling you your dog is keeping me awake. That is fear. That's what fear is. So in the middle of the night, I, I, I can hear this, this young pup just whining and howling. And I go out and I, I put him away in a box, and he's still kind of making a bunch of noise in the box. Then I, I hear the, the neighbor's dog across the road. Their dogs are kind of excited now, and they're, they're making noise. And I hear a couple of the females out in the pen. So I, I, go out, I go out in the middle of the night to try to calm them down, and, and I'm frustrated, and I'm annoyed, and and certainly my wife is, and, and probably the neighbors are. Fortunately, we've got a few acres, so not a lot of neighbors to worry about. But it's just kind of hectic. I'm tired, and I want to be there. I go outside, and, and I calm the dogs down, and then I, I just kind of stand there in the middle of the night. And I don't know how many of you were up at 2 in the morning uh, outside last night, but it just was so beautiful. Last night was so beautiful. The moon was, was so big and heavy that it almost couldn't even make it up high in the sky at that time. And it was really bright outside. And all this stuff that kind of seemed like chaos during the day with the snow and all that stuff, it just seemed so peaceful. And it was just, just this incredible beauty. And it just reminded me that in our chaos, there's always beauty, right? We just kind of have to change our perspective to see that a little bit. Then I went inside and didn't sleep some more. So that's, that's what got us here this morning. All right. So last week, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Ben. Um, I, I, I'm one of the elders here. I was on the elder board. I'm no longer on the elder board. Um, but we're kind of given, given try a little time to focus on some other ministry needs right now. So, so you, you guys had me, uh, share with you last week and again this week. Um, and so hopefully try is getting something done. You never know with try, right? But, um, so last week, if you recall, we went through, uh, some life lessons, uh, through Joseph, right? And, uh, today we're going to do kind of a very similar thing, except we're going to go through the life of Gideon. We don't have quite as big of a picture of Gideon, but there's still some, some good things to learn from Gideon. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you guys this, that this is not my preferred way to teach. I, I don't really like to just kind of um, give a broad overview and then jump all over the scripture. That's kind of what I did last week, and that's what I'm doing again this week. And usually I like to kind of just camp out in a, in a section and, and really dig into that. Um, that's not what we're doing today. Um, so what I'll do, and I didn't warn you last week, if you're the kind of person who likes to follow along in your Bible, good luck, right? Because I'm going to move pretty quick through some stuff. Uh, but I will have all the scripture references up here. So if you're a note taker, you can write down where that was and go visit it later. Um, all right. That being said, let's, let's go ahead and, and jump in. So Gideon was one of the judges appointed by God. Judges are found in the book of Judges, right? Makes sense. So we're going to be kind of doing a high-level overview um, of Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8 today. And that's where we first see um, Gideon appear. 
So in the book of Judges, you'll see this pattern. There's many sections that start like chapter 6 does. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how it starts over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. It's an ugly pattern, but it's, it's the pattern of the nation of Israel. Um, so this is, this is after God has, has brought his people, his nation of Israel, out of slavery, out of captivity from Egypt, brought them through the, the 40 years in the wilderness, finally delivered them into the, the, the promised land, the, the, the land that he set aside for them. They've conquered a lot of the people there, not quite to the degree they were supposed to, but they've, they've settled this land, they've taken over, and now... Uh, Joshua, who is their most recent leader after Moses, Joshua dies, and the people are like, well, now what do we do, right? And, and it didn't take them long for that generation, Joshua's generation, to die out. And the next generation, it says, they, they just didn't know God. They didn't know God. And so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So in response to their, their evil, and then realizing that, that it's not working out for them, and they keep falling into captivity, God sends a judge to rescue them to, to kind of free them from their captivity, restore them as a nation. And then they usually have peace for as long as that person is alive. Then as soon as that person dies, that, that judge that God appoints to kind of rescue them, they go right back into their old ways. They do what is evil on the side of the Lord. So that we're a few judges in to their history, and we get to chapter 6. Now, throughout the judges, it's, it's usually some different oppressor who takes them over. And in chapter 6, it's the turn of the Midianites. So the, the, the nation of Midian, which is a neighboring nation, um, Midian is in control. They've overpowered Israel. And we see that in, in chapter 6, verses 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So these Midianites and others from the east, they would come in and just raid everything that the Israelites have. And you see that there in verse 2, what the Israelites are doing is they're just kind of hiding out. They're finding caves and in places to kind of tuck away to store some of their stuff and even to live sometimes. They're, just, they're hiding out. They're in fear all the time of the Midianites coming in. And God says to them in 19, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, that's how the nation of Israel got to where they are. They're in this oppressed state because they simply didn't obey what God had instructed them to do. So then we get to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiasrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So the winepress would be this low kind of dugout pit area. And so he's down in this dugout pit area working on the, the grain, on the wheat, because he doesn't want to be up here where he normally would because he doesn't want to be seen by the Midianites. So he's down here hiding out, doing his work. And we're going to see throughout this study that Gideon is kind of fearful, right? He's, he's not the bravest of people. But he gets kind of a bad rap because that's really how all of Israel is at this time. He's not alone. They're all kind of chicken, right? So he's, it's his turn to highlight him. Though he's down in this pit. He's, he's working, 
and this angel appears to him. Now, Gideon doesn't recognize it's an angel. He just sees it's some guy. And the angel says to him, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. Now, that is a strange description for Gideon, as we're going to see, because he is not, I mean, at this, at this juncture of the story, he's down in a pit hiding from people. He is not a mighty man of valor, right? But the angel of the Lord calls him this, O you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, man of valor, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So, so Gideon is immediately saying, hey, what did we do wrong to deserve all this oppression? What, what, what happened here? Where's, where's God? Our forefathers told us these stories of God delivering them from Egypt. Where's that God now? The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. I mean, Gideon's acting pretty brave with this, this person here. That's no threat to him. And the angel says, well, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do I not send you? So I think there's a, kind of a, a real quick lesson there, right? That, that oftentimes we're waiting for someone else to respond to God and to do what's right. When really it's God calling us. We're the one he's calling to, to stand up and, and do something. So that's Gideon's opportunity here. Um, for the sake of time, we're going to kind of cruise through some of this. Um, so in the first part here, we see that Israel did what was evil. The Lord gave them to Midian. All of Israel was fearful, and Gideon was really no different, and he was hiding in the wine press. He started this interaction with this angel of the Lord, which was really kind of a strange interaction. And, and at one point, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And at this, when, he, when the Lord says, I, when the angel of the Lord says, I will be with you, all of a sudden it occurs to Gideon, wait, wait, you're just not just some dude talking to me, are you? You're actually like an angel of the Lord talking to me. And, and it, it changes things at that point. Gideon rushes off and he says, wait, wait, wait here. I want to make sure, I want to make sure you're an angel of the Lord. So wait here. You can prove it to me with a sign, but let me go get a gift for you first. So Gideon goes and, and prepares a meal for this person, brings it out to him, and the angel says to him, all right, put it on this rock, and just back away, right? You don't want to stand too close to this. So he, the angel of the Lord touches the, the food with his staff, goes up in flames, right? Gideon says, oh, you are the angel of the Lord. Now he's convinced. Now he's convinced that this is the angel of the Lord. What's interesting, though, is every time Gideon is convinced that this is God talking to him, he still requires a little more assurance, That night, this same angel of the Lord spoke to Gideon and says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to go tear down the kind of the community altar to the god Baal. So that's, that's part of the problem here is the nation of Israel is worshiping this other god, this, this Baal. And they've built this altar to Baal. And so the angel tells Gideon, I want you to go destroy that. Not only tear it down, but then I want you to build an altar to me, Right? And Gideon, in his, his kind of non-courageous way, says, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to go do it at nighttime when it's dark so no one sees me do it, right? So he's still not quite super brave, but he's, he's doing it. He's obeying. Not only does he, he go, he, he doesn't go by himself. He gathers some of his servants. It's important to understand, we'll see this here in a little bit, that Gideon's father is kind of a powerful man in this community. So they're, they're a wealthy family, and they've got servants. So Gideon takes his servants. He takes two bowls, just like the angel says. He does exactly what the angel says takes two bulls, he goes, he tears the altar down with one bull, 
And then he uses the other bull as a sacrifice. And he builds an altar and sacrifices the other bull. He does this all in the middle of the night, right? Just like my dog's making noise. They, they pick the perfect time to do things, right? So, so then he goes back home. And in the morning, all the community comes out and, and they're angry. Like, who did this? We've got to figure out who did this. And it doesn't take them long. And it's probably important also to note that the reason Gideon, it specifically says why Gideon did it at night. He said, Gideon took 10 of his men and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So it tells us specifically who he was afraid of here. Well, his fear comes true. The men of the town are really mad. And they're coming after him like, who did this? And it doesn't take them long to find out that Gideon's the one who did this. So they go to Gideon's home and they say, hey, send Gideon out here so we can put an end to him. He's going to die, right? Send him out. And Gideon's father says, why? Why would I send him out? They said, because he tore down this altar to Baal. And Gideon's father says, look, if Baal's a god, let him defend himself. Why does he need you to fight his battles for him? And, and they all kind of back off at that point. Not only do they back off at that point, but now there's this sudden kind of change in tone. So in, in verse 33 of chapter 6, the, the enemies, the Midianites, are, are coming back. They know that they're coming, they're coming near. They're camping out near them. And the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. This is verse 34. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Baezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they all went out to meet him. So very suddenly, all these men are here to kill Gideon. And then very suddenly, Gideon is clothed with, clothed with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, they're all rallying around him to follow him that quickly, that quickly. At this point, we know that the angel of the Lord has called Gideon to go lead the Israelites in battle and free them from the Midianites. Gideon knows that. All the people that surround him, they know that. But Gideon doesn't really trust that it's going to go down that easy, right? So there's this very famous, this is probably the most famous part of Gideon's story that you all know is, is the testing with the fleece. So Gideon says, all right, God, I'll do what you said. But first, just to be sure that this is really what you want me to do, I'm going to put this fleece out. And, and in the morning, if the fleece is wet but all the ground around it is dry, then I'll, I'll know that that's what you commanded of me to do and I'll, I'll do it. So God does that. God, God, in the morning, all the ground around it is dry but the fleece is wet. Gideon says, okay, that's great, thank you. But, but you know what? I, I'm still not completely sure. I'm like 97% sure, but I'm not quite 100% sure. So don't be angry with me, God, but send me, send me one more test here. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the fleece out again, and this time I want the fleece to be dry and everything around it to be wet, right? And then and God has enough of them at this point, and God just strikes them down with lightning. No, that didn't happen, but that's kind of what Gideon's half expecting, right? And that's kind of what we half expect in our lives. That's not what happens. What happens is God says, fine, here you go. Here's your dry fleece. Worked out just like Gideon asked it to. So now Gideon's like, well, shoot, now I'm kind of all out of options. Like, I have to actually go do this now, right? I think God is really wanting me to, to actually do this. So they know where the Midianites are camped out. And it says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. 
So we see that Gideon has this whole army. All these people come to help Gideon fight. And we learn later on here that there's probably about 35,000 or so in his army that show up. And God says to him, you got too many. You got too many people here. We're going to whittle this bad boy down, right? And, and so, so he, he says, Any, tell anyone that's afraid that doesn't want to be here to leave. And after those leave, there's 10,000 left. How would you like to be some of those early ones that took off, right? Go home. Hey, why are you here? I thought you were going to fight a battle. Yeah, Gideon sent me home, so he just didn't need me, <laughs> right? Um, I'm not sure how you tell your wife that. Well, I, I said I was scared, so I came home. So anyhow, there they are. There's 10,000 of them now. That's not quite good enough for God. God says, it's still too many. So then God has, has Gideon do this, this thing where he says, okay, now what I want is go down to the water. Take, take all your 10,000 men, go down to the water. Tell them all to get a drink. And so you got some, he says, just, just watch how they do. Some are going to kneel down and, and, and lift the water up and cup it with their hands. And some others are just going to like lap it like a dog, stick their face down and lap it like a dog. He says, those who, those who cup it and, and drink it like that, save those, send everyone else home. So after that, there's only 300 men left. That's it. Out of the 10,000, there's only 300 of them standing there. And God says, there's your army. That's what you got to work with. Now at this point, they know, they've seen, they, they can see the Midianites' camp. It's more than 300, okay? In fact, we learn later on, it's more like 135,000. It's pretty big. It's a big army. And here's his 300 men. And God says, all right, Gideon. This is verse 9 in chapter 7. He says, all right, Gideon. Arise, go down against their camp, for I have given it into your hands. That's the instruction. All right, Gideon, there's the hundred and some thousand people I want you to go destroy. Here's your 300 men. Go for it. That's not a lot of instruction. But God, God knows Gideon, right? Because he made him, right? And he's been corresponding with him throughout this. He says, but Gideon, if you are afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. So Gideon says, well, yeah, that's me. I'm afraid, right? So thank you for giving me that option. So Gideon takes his servant. They go down. They kind of sneak down to the camp. And they just kind of nestle in, they're hiding out in the dark, listening carefully, and they hear this. They hear one of the Midianites telling someone else that he had a dream, that behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand, Midian, and all our camp. And Gideon and his servant Pura are hearing this, and, and now Gideon realizes, okay, maybe, maybe God actually is doing something. Maybe God actually is in control of this, and we can do this. And he hears this dream, and he's encouraged by this. But you know what he does? He doesn't just run back and say, all right, guys, grab your swords. It says he worships. It says in 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. That's a really significant thing. Here, here it is. This is a victory in the mind of Gideon. It's not a, it, the victory hasn't played itself out, but it's good news. And Gideon stops and he worships. I don't know what that looked like for Gideon, but, and I don't know how long it lasted, but then he, then he does retreat back to the camp. 
and he gathers his men, and he says, all right, guys, here we go. It's go time. We're going to go down. We're going to take this thing. God has delivered them into our hands. Here's what we're going to do, exactly what I do. And they're not, they don't have their swords necessarily. Through, they certainly don't have their swords in their hands. He says, take a, a, a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand. That's your fighting tools, okay? We're 300 men going up 100,000 and plus, and this is what I want you to fight with, a torch and a trumpet. He says, do exactly what I do. So he divides them up into three groups, three 100-person groups, and they, they kind of surround this camp. And Gideon goes down, and he reveals his torch, and he starts blowing his trumpet, and everyone else does the exact same thing. All of a sudden, there's 300 torches surrounding and 300 trumpets blasting. And as soon as that happens, all the people of Midian start to fight each other. They go into this chaos and panic, and they fight each other and start to kill each other. And a few that don't kill each other just take off running right? And it's, it's this, this completely unpredictable kind of victory that, that no one could have seen coming except God, right? Well, that kind of gets us through chapter 7. Then when you get to chapter 8, you see Gideon pursues the king. So the kings of Midian, they, they kind of escape the, the scrum and they, they take off. Gideon pursues them and and eventually captures these kings and eventually kills them. And there's more to the story. But we're leaving out a lot of details to get to this point, right? So once the battle is over and once Gideon has captured and killed the kings, man, the nation of Israel is grateful. Here they were about to kill this guy. Not very, just like, like maybe two days ago. And then in, in chapter 8, verse 22... Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So they're ready to kill him for destroying this, this altar to Baal. And now they want him to rule over them. He's delivered them, right? He's their savior. They want him to rule over them. And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that would have been a really great place to end the story of Gideon. But that's not where the story of Gideon ends. Next thing Gideon says to them is, I have got one request. Let me make one last request of you. Every one of you. So this is, this is immediately following him saying, I, I, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Let God rule over you. He's the one who's delivered you. And then Gideon says, just one, one request. I want you to gather all the, the, the earrings that you captured from the Midianites, all the, all the jewelry, all, all the fine things, all the spoils of this battle. I want you to gather all that. I want you to, to, to just give it all to me. I'm going to make something. So they did. They gathered it all together. It says the weight of the golden earrings that request was 1,700 shekels of gold besides all the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So all this stuff they gather together and they give to Gideon. And Gideon, in verse 27, Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. So an ephod, this is best as I understand it, and there's, there's a little bit of 
kind of mysterious exactly what this is, but generally what an ephod is in the Old Testament is an ephod would be kind of like this, this very intricately decorated apron kind of thing. It'd be kind of a, like this shirt style thing, but more of an apron that the priest would wear in their priestly duties to, to really kind of highlight the glory of God as they go into the presence of God. So it's this beautiful, ornate, kind of, kind of cloak-looking thing. Gideon makes this thing out of all this, all, all this gold, all the purple cloth. All this. So you can imagine it's very beautiful, very ornate, and very attractive. And, and Gideon chooses to put it in his hometown, right there in Ophrah, where Gideon lives. And then it tells us, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And then it tells us that Gideon grows old, and he dies. And then in verse 33, it says, As soon as Gideon died, imagine this, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right after Gideon dies. So that's the, that's the story of Gideon from a high-level view. Now we're going to kind of dig into some lessons learned from Gideon. We've, we've touched upon a couple, but we're going we're to walk through a few specific things, and we're going to explore that a little more. All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna, last week when we did the study of Joseph, we found three specific things that we wanted to focus in on God. We're going to do the, kind of the same thing this week. We're going to pick out three specific lessons we can pick from the life of Gideon. Lesson number one, follow God's instructions. That seems pretty simple, right? Just do what God says. Do it exactly how God says it. God's instructions don't necessarily make sense, though, right? And we see God give Gideon several instructions. We see him very very early on just say, fine, Gideon, go free the nation of Israel then, mighty man of valor. And, and, and Gideon's not prepared for that. So then God, God okay, well, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to prepare you to do exactly what I just told you to do. First instruction was to, to go destroy the, the altar to the Baal. Well, that sort of makes sense that that's what God would want, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to Gideon because Gideon's kind of chicken, right? And, and this instruction is going to make everyone mad at him. How is he possibly going to lead everyone and free the nation of Israel if everyone hates him and wants to kill him? But that's exactly what God tells him to do. The second instruction is to lead an army against Midian. But again, why Gideon? Why this guy? Why, why would God use this guy of all people? Certainly, certainly there's somebody in Israel that's not, I mean, the, the whole nation as a whole is, is pretty scared. But certainly there's got to be somebody that's like, Look, I don't need to hide out in a wine press. I'm good. Bring it, right? Somebody's got to have that attitude. But God didn't pick that guy. God picked Gideon, who's scared, who's hiding out. The third instruction was to shrink the army down. That doesn't make sense. It does not make sense to, to go fight with less people unless you're just trying to sneak in, right? That wasn't the point here. Now, God tells us exactly why he wanted to shrink the army down. So go back to 6, and the Lord says, go back in chapter 6, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. 
See, God's saying, look, if I send you down there with your entire army and you guys wipe out the Midianites, you're just going to say, man, we're good fighters. Look how good we are. We're so good that even with a smaller army, we still conquered them. You see, because it's, it's, it's achievable, right? With, with your number of men and you guys are skilled fighters, you could go do this and then you're going to take the credit for yourselves. But it's really not possible. It's not possible for you guys to just win this war with 300 men. But if I send you down with 300 men and you win, then I get the credit. And that's what God is wanting. He wants God to focus on them here. We're going to come back and revisit that. But this, the second point we're going to get to is that we're going to make God's glory your priority. That's point number two. And the third thing we're going to talk about, the third point is to abide in God. Now let's go back and explore the first one more. To follow God's instructions. We see, we've already covered that, that God has instructed Gideon these things. And God's instructions didn't make a lot of sense to Gideon. And we see this throughout history that, that when God tells us to do something, we need to just do it even when it doesn't make sense. We see that the Old Testament oftentimes gives us a picture of how things ought to work for us. And then the New Testament kind of explains the specific application of that lesson to us. We see oftentimes where God gives very specific instructions in the Old Testament. Like Noah. He gave Noah very specific instructions on how to build the ark. What if Noah didn't do it that way? What if Noah didn't do it the way God said to build it? Would it have sunk? Probably, then what would have been left? Nothing, right? We've seen sometimes where God gives a specific instruction and people in the Old Testament disregard it. King Saul, he, he was one of those where God says, okay, here's exactly how you do it. Wait for the priest to come. The priest will do the sacrifice. King Saul got tired of waiting, so he does the sacrifice himself. And God says, all right, man, you're out. You're out. So God gives us an instruction for a reason. And the Old Testament is full of these stories showing us what happens when you obey God's instruction versus when you disobey God's instruction. It's kind of like when I went to boot camp many, many, many years ago. Um, they, when you're there, they're just constantly drilling all these silly little requirements in it. You have to fold all your laundry exactly this specific way and stack it just right, just this very specific way. And if you don't, man, they tear you up. They tear you up and you're going to do a bunch of exercises if you didn't fold your laundry exactly the right way. Do they care how you fold your laundry? Of course not. It doesn't make a lick of difference how you fold your laundry. But what they're trying to teach you is it's so important for you to pay attention to detail and listen to every word and do what you're told. Because when you leave here and you go off and, and you're on a ship in a wartime situation and you choose to ignore the details or just kind of do it your own way, people die. That's the consequences of not paying attention to detail and following orders to a T. So they teach you that through folding your laundry. The Old Testament is kind of like teaching us how to fold our laundry. Saying, look, look, I'm going to show you exactly why it's important. And then when we get to our present day, we can see the application of how that matters to us. James 1.22 says to be doers of the word. Be doers of what God calls you to do. If, if you just are familiar with it and you know it, but you ignore it, then you're, you're wasting it away. In fact, that's, that's rebellion against what God wants of you. Now, we are given instructions throughout scriptures. We certainly, we're given the Ten Commandments, right? But way more than that, throughout the New Testament, we're, we're taught 
how to live, how to respond, how to treat our wives, how to raise our children, how to function as a church. We're taught how to deal with people financially sometimes. We're showed these biblical examples of how to live our lives, right? How to, how to pursue God with your time. We're given lots of instruction. We're given more instruction than just what's in the Word, right? Some of you, some of you have experienced where the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do something. That's, that's God's instruction to you. So it's not just the law. It's, it's how God calls you to do something whether it's specifically expressly written in the Bible, whether God is prompting you through the Spirit to do something. When God is instructing you, you've got to take action. You've got to do it. Oftentimes, we try to make our own path when God gives us instructions. God gives us instructions. We either ignore the instruction altogether and try to do it our own way, or we kind of partially do the instruction. And usually it's because we're trying to figure out what makes the most sense for me. What, what's going to work out the best for me in this? God is instructing to do it this way. That doesn't make sense to me, so I think I'm going to do it this way. God says, whittle your army down to 300. Well, that seems stupid. I think I have a better chance of winning if I have 10,000, so I'm taking 10,000 instead. I'll bet the victory wouldn't have gone as well if Gideon took 10,000 men down instead of 300, right? But you and I do this all the time. We are, we are constantly treating our spouses different than what the Bible instructs us to because we think, well, look, if I, if I manipulate the situation, I, I've got to do this, otherwise I'm going to lose this person. They're not going to respond to me. They're not going to love me or respect me if I, don't, if I don't domineer over them or if I don't manipulate the situation or if I don't coerce my kids to do this and, 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 and make them feel guilty about this, then I might lose them or their attention. And, and God says, that's, that's not what I've taught you. Just do it the way I taught you, and it'll work out. We do this in church. Our churches today all the time do this, where we say, you know what? This worked really well in the business world, so let's run our church this way, right? And that's not what God says. God says, no, I'm giving you a biblical example of how you ought to fellowship together and serve me. Do it the way the Bible says to do it. Don't make it your own just because it seems like it'll make sense. But we're constantly doing that. We're constantly letting culture set a standard for us, say, okay, this makes more sense. You're a dirty dog if you don't do it like this. And we say as a church, well, we don't want people thinking we're a dirty dog, so we better do it like culture says. We better, we better shift a little bit. Just do it the way God says to do it. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, he has purpose in his instruction. He has a good, perfect purpose in his path that he has laid out for you. We saw this last week in Joseph, right? That it didn't make any sense, but God is still good. God has this, this goodness that we can't understand and a path to achieve that goodness that we can't comprehend, but we try to outthink God sometimes, and it doesn't work well for us. But we can trust we can trust that if we're loving God and serving God and pursuing God, he's going to make it work out well for us. Now, we've got to be super careful with that. Don't hear me wrong when I say that. That does not mean you're going to prosper in this, right? That does not mean if you follow God's instruction and you tithe, that now you're not going to have any financial worries after that. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that if 
if you just stop sinning and do the right things, that God is going to heal you from whatever ailment you have. That's not what it means. And we saw this again last week, and we see this constantly throughout our lives, that the goodness of God, what he has in store for us that is good, doesn't always feel good or look good. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and awkward. Sometimes, honestly, it kills us, right? If anyone tells you that being righteous and obeying God will lead you to a prosperous life, I think John the Baptist would argue with you, right? Didn't work out for him. He lost his head in prison. Not very prosperous, right? But he's blessed. That's the thing. When it says that it'll work out, pursuing God, following God's path, the good, righteous path he has in store, afraid of what might happen. I might lose everything if I do that. It's not always easy to follow God's instruction. But what we know is God's grace is sufficient, right? We saw that in Gideon in this story. Over and over, Gideon asked for more. Over and over, Gideon was unsure. He's like, look, I know you're God. I know you're telling me to do this, but just, just let me be sure, right? Send me a sign. Okay, send me another sign. Right? One more sign, right? And Gideon knows, Gideon fears that he's asking to be angry at me, but just, just hear me out, just one more sign. He, he feels this sense of guilt that he is burdening God by being doubtful. But God never, God never responds that way. God doesn't say to him, Gideon, I've had enough of this. One more, that's it. That's all you're getting. You're getting one more fleece and then we're done, right? He doesn't do that. Over and over, God says, hey, look, I'm going to give you whatever you need to feel secure to do this. Still afraid? Okay, go down. I'll put a dream in this guy's head to give you some assurance. Whatever you need, Gideon, I'm going to, I'm going to make you successful, Gideon. It's not you, it's me. I'm going to make you successful, so stop worrying. My grace is sufficient for you. We see this throughout Scripture in Moses in Exodus 4. The burning bush, God's instructing Moses, hey, go to Egypt and free your people. Moses is like... Man, I don't, I don't think they'll believe me. Why would they believe me, right? God says, well, I'll give you signs. Don't worry about that. Yeah, but I'm not very eloquent. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stutter and I'm going to not say the right thing and it's not, it's not going to work out, God. Well, I'll, I'll send Aaron with you, right? I, I, fine, I'm going to make this work for you, Moses. Stop coming up with excuses. I will make this work for you. We're good. God is patient. Thomas in the New Testament, John chapter 20. Jesus comes and meets his disciples, and, and Thomas isn't there. And then, and, then, and then Jesus leaves, and Thomas comes and joins his disciples. And says, hey, Jesus was just here. He's like, yeah, right. No, seriously, Jesus was just here. He's like, no way, guys. I'm, I'm not, unless I put my hand, my finger, in the holes in his hand and touch his side, I am not believing it. I'm not, I'm not believing it. A few days later, about a week later, Jesus appears before Thomas. And the other disciple, he says, Thomas. Go ahead, put your hand in the hole in my hand. Touch my side. He doesn't say, Thomas, what's the matter with you? You fool, why didn't you believe when all the others believed? He doesn't do that. He gives Thomas what Thomas is needing. He meets him right where he's at. He doesn't make him feel stupid. He doesn't shame him. He gives him what he needs in his moment of doubt. God is patient and God is gracious. All right, second point. We're to make God's glory our priority. 
You've heard, you've heard this said that, some of you have probably heard this expression, God never gives us more than we can handle. Anyone ever heard that? Okay. Depending on how you interpret that, it's probably not what you think or not what the person who said to you. Is, is God gives us more than we can handle all the time. All the time. In fact, like, you can't handle anything without God. Gideon could not win a war with 300 men. Couldn't do it. That's more than he could handle. But here's the truth of it, is that God's grace is sufficient to get you through anything. God will strengthen you no matter what you do. So it's true that we can't handle it, but that's by design. That's, that's so God can say, let me do this for you. Let me do this through you. And that's exactly why God whittled the army down, was so he could show his glory to the world through the actions of his people. Matthew 6, says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. Again, that does not mean everything you ever want you'll have. That's not what that means. But it says, make God your priority. Seek first God's kingdom. Make that your priority. And you don't have to worry about everything else. You'll either have it or not have it. I'm in control of that. Stop worrying about that. Stop pursuing yourself. Stop pursuing meeting your needs. I'll meet your needs whenever I want to meet your needs, says God. You just worry about honoring me with your time. I'll take care of you. Matthew 4.10, this is where Jesus is, is called out to the desert. In, in, in the, he's, he's being tempted, and Satan himself is tempting Jesus. Satan says, look, if you just bow down before me, I will give you all of this. It's all yours. And Jesus responds to him, Satan, don't you know that Scripture says to serve only God and no other and worship only him? I don't need to serve you, Satan. I already have everything because I serve God. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 is, is where Jesus says, hey, look, the greatest commandment is this. It's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, right? That doesn't leave room for, for me to just devote part of that to, to me. You don't have to devote your attention to you. You devote it to God. God will take care of you. You're no more capable of meeting your own needs by focusing on it than not focusing on it. God still has it covered. There's two ways that this becomes a problem in our lives. Number one, we do good things, but for our own glory, right? We're taking credit for things God is doing. Or the second way this happens is we pursue our own plan, ignoring God's instruction because we see one that's more pleasing or sensible. Right? So, for example, Gideon went and fought this, this battle. If he would have taken credit for it and said, man, look how good of a leader I am. Look how great me and my fighting 300 are. That would have been an example of the first, where God does something powerful in it. He takes credit for it. The other example, the other kind of trouble we get into is where, where by example, I already gave you. If Gideon says, you know what? 300 is too little. Let's get the 10,000 back. Let's go fight it with 10,000 instead. I've got a better plan. I think my plan will work better than God's. Paul was concerned about the first one. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is saying, hey, look, I am likely 
to boast in myself. I am likely to become conceited. As I'm doing, as I'm writing letters and I'm changing lives and I'm, I'm, I'm spreading the gospel all over the world, I am likely to start to take credit for that. Even though I know God is doing it. So I appreciate that it's in my weakness that God has made strong. That it's, it's through my weakness that God's glory shines brighter. King David did this also, where he, he, God blessed him with his great kingdom. And he says, don't take a census. But, but David wanted to just kind of see his own value and his own worth, and David took this census and, and took credit for what God had given to him. We see over and over where people try to come up with their own plan because they think it makes more sense. We do that in our marriages, right? We, we do that when we're starting marriages. I don't want to step on anyone's toes in here, but listen, listen. here's the reality. If, if you're starting your marriage in a way because it makes more sense to you, like maybe we'll just kind of see if we're compatible first or, or let's try out living as husband and wife sort of first and see if it works. Just, just trust God, right? I mean, he will make you compatible if you just honor him. He's going to make it work out for you if you do it his way. There's beauty in following God's path. Choosing God is always good, no matter what. Choosing God is always good. But some of us choose God actually for our own benefit. Culture tells us, look, you need to look out for numero uno, right? You need need to watch out for yourself. And some of us take that same approach when we're pursuing God because we say, well, man, my life's pretty screwed up. I think think maybe I can straighten out my life if I pursue God. Or or maybe I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to follow God. And, And again, however you got to God is good, Right? But you need to grow in your faith and realize, okay, serving God is not so that things work out better for me. I don't want to serve God so that I can be healed. I don't want to serve God so that I can break this addiction. I don't want to serve God so that he'll bring me a a spouse. I don't want to serve God so I can be better. Now, those are all the byproduct of serving God. But you you serve God by serving God, by making him your number one, by, by just living your life in a way that the main point is to glorify him. See, that's, that's what we're called to do. We're told that, that you are given God's glory. The, the, the hope of the gospel is placed in you. And what you are is this jar of clay. Paul teaches us that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A jar of clay is not a beautiful thing. It's a very dull thing. And in fact, it's, it's, it, it's going to have inconsistencies to it. So if you put a light inside of it and then put it in a dark room, you're going to see the glow of that light shine through in different spots on this. And if there's a crack in that jar, you're going to see the glow of the light shine out more and more. And it's, it's through the brokenness and weaknesses and flaws of that jar that you see the light shine more brightly. And that's what God is telling us we are. We are the jars of clay. And it's in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our inconsistencies that God's glory shines in us. That's our purpose. Our purpose is so the world can see the glory of God shine in our own lives. The last point we're going to cover is to abide in Christ. And this isn't so much a lesson from Gideon specifically as it is from the the overall picture of what's going on with the nation of Israel. I told you that the pattern of the nation of Israel is that someone comes in and kind of changes their life, gives them a new perspective, and they're following it. They're doing great for a while, 
and then they kind of get distracted and they go do evil what's inside the Lord. They keep doing this back and forth. They, they do great for a while, then they fail. They do great for a while, then they fail. Can anyone relate? That, uh, you've heard me say this, and I'll say this over and over and over. The nation of Israel, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is just a picture of my life. It's just me played out over a whole country. How do we avoid that? How do, how do we not keep falling into that pattern of consistently slipping back into our old ways, doing evil that's in the sight of the Lord, falling back into that addiction, going back into that relationship, gossiping about people, just, just constantly going back to the things that we want to avoid so much. And what happens oftentimes is the more we focus on that thing we want to avoid, the more we do that thing we want to avoid, Right? In Matthew 14, Peter is called out of the boat to walk on the water. And Jesus says, just come to me. Just look at me and come to me. And Peter steps out on the boat in faith and he's walking. And it's going great. And he's looking right at Jesus. He's like, this is great. Whoop. And as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks, right? As soon as he takes his eyes off the thing that is good, that he's pursuing, he slips In John chapter 15, in fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 15. This is a good one to, to actually look at. We're going we're gonna to end here in just a minute. John chapter 15, this is such a powerful picture. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Go down to verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. What I want you to do is I want you to, on your, on your time, read through that whole, that whole chapter there. It's such a powerful picture. Here's how we're to abide in Christ. Like a branch abides in the tree. Do you ever see the branch take a break from the tree and then go back to the tree later and then take a break from the tree and go back to No. What, what Christ is saying here is stick with me. Just put your eyes on me. Stick with me. Abide in me. That, that word abide is not just kind of follow by my side once in a while. No, it's, it's dwell with me. Live with me. Let's, 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 let's be intertwined in this like a, like a branch is in a vine. If you can do that, if you, if, you, if you start to walk in this reality that, okay, he's with me all the time. I'm, I'm never without my Savior. I'm never lacking. He's always with me. I can, I can, I'm invited to always be with him. I, I, don't, I don't only need to associate with Jesus in my morning prayer time, right? No, I'm with him all day long. I can talk to him throughout the day. Jesus, what's up, right? Hey, this is, this is a hard moment for me, God. You with me? I'm with you. This, this abiding relationship where it's constant, you're always with him. You don't take a break because you go to work. You don't take a break because you're sleeping. You don't take a break from abiding with Christ because you're yelling at your kid. You don't take a break because you're having an intimate time with your spouse. You're abiding with Christ all the time. It makes your life more rich, more full. You don't really experience the tenderness of God until you learn how to abide in Him. To live in that constant fellowship with your Savior. 
when you're there, you're less likely, I'm not saying you won't, I'm saying you're less likely to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord and slip back. And it's a much quicker path to get back on track with him when you've got that abiding relationship. All right, so let's close out and review these final three points. Follow God's plan. God has instructions for you. God instructs you in Scripture. God instructs you by blessing you with the Holy Spirit in your life to prompt you to things. Follow God's plan. The whole thing. Don't just do part of it and say, that's pretty close. Do exactly how God calls you to do it. It'll work out well for you. Make God's glory your priority. Don't follow God so that you can be successful. Don't ignore God's plan because you think you have a better way to honor yourself. God will take care of you. Make his glory your priority. And thirdly and lastly, abide in him. Join Christ in that relationship that he calls you to. It's not about following instructions. It's not about following rules. It's about abiding in him. When you're doing that, the rest seems to follow. So where are you at in your life that you need to make some change and say, man, I've been doing this my way for way too long. I need to give this up. I need to follow Christ in a way that I know when, he, when he's with me, remember, keep that in your mind. When he's with you, maybe that helps you think of accountability a little, little more clearly, right? So God is calling you to pursue him in a way that's probably different than what you've done in the past. Don't be afraid to make big changes in your life. Come out of the wine press. Be bold because God is blessing you to do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the way you love us and empower us with your strength to bring glory to your kingdom, God, and that we get the privilege of being a part of that. What what an honor that is, Lord. We thank you for loving us in a way that allows us that. We thank you for this morning. We ask that you bless our, our, uh, our day as we leave here, Father, that we would enjoy the beauty of your creation today, even when it feels a little, a little sharp. And we just thank you for all that you do in our lives, God. In your name we pray, amen.